Yo, you're listening to the Raw 90 podcast, and I'm MC Flux. My selector good, my selector wise. Are you been? Hello and welcome to the second part of the 90s Rave podcast interview with MC Flux. He's a top uh, MC from the 90s and myself, Tom Latcham. In the first part, we heard about how Flux grew up in violent gangs. He became a raver and then became a top mic man for Moving Shadow. But Flux was living a double life as one of the South Coast's main drug dealers. And it was sadly to bring his life and career crashing down before he built it up again. But we're going to explore all that in this episode. Hello, Mr. Flux. Carl, how are you? Not too bad, sir. How are you? I'm all right. I think we're going good, to delve into good. some darkness now. It looks like we're going to get really sticky here, uh, don't we? Yeah, it looks like it. But that's cool. Um, so you started... Well, you, were, you, were, you, you were going to raves quite a lot. I don't know if it was before you picked up the mic or after, but you started dealing drugs not, uh, not long after you started going raving towards the end of the 80s into the early 90s. You mentioned in your book it was because you were black, you kept getting approached for people selling drugs. So then in the end, you just decided, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Is that right? I, I would say that's a fair assumption. It's, I wouldn't just, just say, I'm not one of these guys leaning on, is it because I'm black? No, it, it's a very, very fair assumption. Probably why it was one of the reasons why I particularly, I can speak for myself, why I said, look, you know what? I'm going to sell some drugs. But also, the fact denominator was actually seeing the amount of money what could be made through um, offering a service, if I put it that way, to um, um, dealing drugs. So it was like one and the other. Like, God, I'm getting asked all the time. I see there's a, a penny in it or a pound. So why not? Well, there's a big step from going from there to becoming one of the main drug dealers on the South Coast. How did you get there? How did you start? What, how, how, I'm, not, I'm not saying offer our listeners or, 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 or audience some advice on how to get into drug dealing, <laughs> but how does one come about getting into drug dealing uh, to that level? Um, it's not rocket science. It's, it's believing yourself and having the balls to say, I can do this. I guess when I was younger, if I feel the way I feel now and I knew the way I was younger, I was fearless. And the people I had around me, they were fearless. And it was like, I didn't go down there by myself. There was a firm of us. And where we lived, where we were geographically lived in South London wasn't too far away from the South Coast. So it was a bit hot in London, wasn't it? It was a bit difficult. It was tied up, right? Yeah. So you, but you saw an opportunity on the South yeah, Coast. Yeah, you could say that. It wasn't like the fact that, okay, you know, what? there was people there and we couldn't we couldn't play with them or mess with them. Nothing to do with that. It was just that the fact that we were geographically placed in Croydon, Brighton was 45 minutes down the road. It was our optional ground for us. We went down there, not just because of that, because of just the rave and it was just down there. And there was an opening, and we said, we're going to take this opening. And we did, and we took full advantage of it. And, we, you know, we didn't go there firm hand in gun blazing. We went in there with um, diplomatic speeches. Yeah, we did kind of flex a bit of muscle. <laughs> but, well, um, you, you say in your book, I mean, some of, the, some, of the, uh, some of the way you exerted your muscle was pretty brutal. Yeah, like I said before, 
there was a time before we had, um, you know, things were going pretty well. We had an altercation with some Portsmouth guys, some related to the 657 crew, notorious football f- um, firm. We knew there might be trouble down this particular rave. There was two prominent DJs down there at the time, Fru um, Ryan and Fabio. It was a tense night and um, it came to a kid. You know, we were, we were ready to let it go. We said, look, you have to take what we gave, gave out and there's nothing you can do about it. And we took a lot of money off these guys, but we said, we're here, we're not going nowhere, so if you want to do something about it, it's up to you. Now, these guys were connected. Like I said, these are 657 boys. These are Portsmouth guys. We're nearly on their manor. But we really said to them, this is us, and we're, we're here to stay. So as the, as the rave finished, I finished work. They thought they could flex their muscle, and they tried, and they got found out. And I think that's the first time when Groove and Fabio probably turned to us and said, we're out for it, and we can look after ourselves. And they saw the violence we dished out that day. The whole rave stopped, and it was a violent dish out of, 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 um, of what we could do because we were fearless. It's not like we were the best. We were fearless, and we were ready to go whatever we needed to do to show that we're not going to be messed with. And it was that particular night where things were apparently came on top for these guys. And and, and that was when you became the, the main show in town in terms of doing Yeah, that. yeah. Well, I mean, we was sort of like there, but we got on with the people in, in um, Brighton who we were dealing with very well in, um, in a tremendous way. So it was like um, a connection from sort of like Ireland to London to Brighton where um, we were dealing with a guy called, this guy called Levine, he was from Ireland and he was dealing with um, a guy who who was um, a bit unsavory, who had um, links to Combat 18, who we were getting our stuff from. So you, were you a big, a firm of black guys, okay. were getting your stuff from Combat 18 people? You could say that, yeah. Bit weird. Yeah, um, I met a sort of guy called Charlie Sargent, um, well-known guy, um, Southampton. I had a friend, um, won't mention his name, very good friend at the time. And um, he had um, we had these political views. He didn't really was into black people, but like I said, it... I mean, that Combat 18 don't tend to be into black people. No, and the story behind sort that... Sort of the point of Combat 18, right? Well, the, well, the story behind that, I was doing my first prison sentence. This is back in 1995. And um, there was an ongoing case going on. And armed police turned up at my house, raided my flat, looking for Combat 18 stuff. <laughs> and my girl... Knock on the door, see this giant black man. I think we might have no, the wrong house here, I was, in, I was in prison and, and oh, my, right, girl, my girlfriend at the time thinking, do you know my boyfriend's black? <laughs> it was it was the most honestly you couldn't make it up and you know because but yes yeah, there was links there and this is where the the, the solicitation of drugs were coming from through this sort of like firm so you, you mentioned you met Charlie Sargent uh, if anyone doesn't know who Charlie Sargent is he he was a very very serious 
um, Combat 18. He was the Combat 18 leader, basically, at the time. There's a lot of rumours about whether he was uh, MI5 honeypot, etc., etc. But he mm. went to prison for uh, killing a guy called Chris Castle, uh, stabbing him to death over a membership list of the of, of BMP or Combat 18 or something like that. Anyway, point being, not a very nice guy, seriously violent, um, and and you met him and you did some business with him. I, I mean, what was he like? Was he, was he nice to you despite him being a Nazi and despite you being black? Were you not intimidated by someone like that? Did you not think, you know what, I don't want to do business with this Nazi? Well, this is, this is, this is, this is where the, the whole hypocrisy of maybe, sorry, the way things are reported, these people may have these beliefs, but if you carry yourself the right way, you don't carry yourself like an idiot, Colour doesn't come into it, but we know that he went to prison for being, yeah, but you know, for stabbing a man to I, death. I, and, okay, okay, I, in, 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 and was the leader of Combat Eighteen. But I mean, we know those things, you know. So he is—he isn't a pleasant man. No, he's not, and I'm not trying to justify what sort of man he is. But I, I'm going to say, if you, look, we're humans, and if if I'm not coming in, you no, know, some people say you got your typical black man, walk with a limp, attitude, loud, you can't converse, blah blah. Some people might break that down. That's a typical black man, loud noise thing. I maybe didn't come across to him as that. I came across to him as a decent bloke. But it's more about your view of him. I'm My view of him is if he's cool, he ain't doing me any harm, I've got any problems with him. We need to do some business. And I didn't have a problem with him at any time of the, the couple of occasions our paths crossed. But I didn't have to do any business even with him because my friend who had certain little view, views the way he thought we were friends so I'm with him so he's really saying like that's Rodney he can handle himself yeah he's my black mate don't worry about it he's sweet and it was like that so he's really got the nod that I'm sweet but don't, let's not get it wrong. I'm not in there like a token black man where you can sit there and you can tell the jokes and I'm going to say, hey, hey, it wasn't like that. This was business dealings and everything else. His political views was his views, but he never showed that to me or I saw or any other time. And what sort of business were you doing with him? The same sort of things. There was, there was business with gambling as well, what they were doing, which I didn't get involved with, which was it's the horse betting thing. We were going around certain betting shops and they knew particularly what horses were coming in. The rigging at the time mm. was a massive thing in the nineties, in the horse racing things. They, they, these people knew what horses were going to win at the time, and if you're into that, there's a lot of yeah, money yeah. into it, and that was massive in the south coast. So they were into that bit as well, where we went round um, um, shops, which I haven't mentioned too much because obviously it, 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 oh, there's a, quite a lot to get in the book to be yeah, fair, isn't the, it? The, <laughs> You've the, got to choose some, bit, some they, edits. They, they use bit, but there's, there's that side of it, which I think they were more. Deep, more deepening into. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, again. Drugs as well? Drugs. Because you, you're talking about Northern Ireland coming through to Levine, to Levine, to to, to the. Uh, so loyalist, Com- loyalist, loyalist links there? Yes, yes, right. yes. To the Comeback 18, to, to my friend, to us. Hey, you mean? Raw 90s podcast. This is MC Flux. <clears throat> so, how at your peak, how much, what drugs were you selling and what sort, and to what sort of quantities? Um, see what you do with George and thing. I was never the mass person. I was like, "Is the money there?" And enforce, like the enforcer sort of thing. But you know, there was anything from fifteen, ten, twenty a week. 
grand. Um, so it was always in f- sort of balancing between that figure. But we, like pills? I said before, Cocaine, pills, oh. Weed, what were you selling? Um, oh, mo- mostly pills, mostly pills. But thousands a week? Yeah, yes. Yes, we were putting, together, putting some people to work and doing bits. But, you know, we were breaking off. The, the more we got to do things, the more we, more people we met. Some of us were, were, te- were teaming up teaming up with them people, some of the firm, to make money. Or some of us went solo because we're you. You can only stay as, as a crew for so long. You were selling huge amounts, right? The, the police attention must have been... If not there, it would have been very close. You know, you would have been being watched, particularly as you're a football hooligan as well. You know, it, you were using such severe violence. You, re- you read about it in the book, such severe violence, knives, hammers, you, you name it. Not not guns, admittedly. Uh, no. But, but, you know, serious, serious levels, levels of violence. Was there not a point when you thought, what the fuck am I doing? No. <laughs> Weird. I don't think there was a time when I really thought, hey, what's going on? This this is not right. I could someone could die, I could die. I guess because it was that that time of life, probably why we're sitting here today, right? It was just it it it, it was a, a journey. And I didn't know where where the ending was. And I was fearless. I was. I don't know why, and so it wasn't weird to me. And 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 did any of the, you know, the 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 moving shadow guys who employed you, the other book, the, the other promoters who booked you, who who you know who would have this this must have been a relatively open secret in raves. Your behaviour, like, did any of the other acts, whatever, go, mate, you can't do this because loads of times, and if it if it didn't happen, it never happened. Towards me, but I knew that tune the years going going on, my my behaviour was getting uncontrolled, and if it, if it wasn't personal, what I was taking is what I was doing, and the way I was living. So I knew it was getting it was spiraling out of control during the latter days of of my um, addiction, and also the dealings, and also the football. I you there was, you know, he's coming on top. You can't. You, you feel like your life is spiraling out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I believe when the addiction came in, I, I, things were spiraling out of control by uh, at a huge rate. And you, it, it led you to make some pretty terrible decisions, right? Um, and the whole thing fell down. I think that's maybe an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell me sure, okay, your your well, story. Okay, well. The truth is, is to be told. Yeah, of course. I mean, listen, it's called a spade a spade, and I don't mean to be use that sort of words. But I, I, you know, I like to explain to people like they're a five year old. You got to understand. I was addicted to heroin. Now, if anybody knows what to be addicted to a drug, what you need to rely on is the first thing you take at morning, it's the last thing you take at night, and they're the only two things you think of. So everything, nothing else really matters. Everything is irrelevant after that because you can't function or you can't sleep. But like, but at that time, I wasn't sure for a few quid. So I didn't have to go on the street and rob or sell my body or something like that because I had, there was money. So I you mm. had to use my charm to get what I needed to get. I wasn't getting a 20 bag thing. I was getting an eight for a quarter ounce 
and it was really there. How I became an addict already, there was a half a bar in my house, which was a half bar is four and a half ounces of heroin in my house, why I became addicted to that drug. It was there already. In my place. They always say don't get high on your own supply, don't they? That's the worst thing a dealer can do. Unfortunately, you, you like to. <laughs> yeah, um, it's the way I lived my life. I was a rock and roll lifestyle effect, but it wasn't that what made me come addiction. It was it was the double life, the triple life I was living. It was crazy. I had my private life was to that person, to 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 the person who I who I married at the time, and to a person who I had there. And it was just lying. It was the lies, ferocious lies coming out. And I believed these lies. And, you know, I'm high on coke. I'm high on this. And I, the lies I'm telling to my family, to friends. And I guess I just wanted my head to slow down. And something said, there's that drug. That drug can make you slow down. Can it? Really? And I guess it was just like, um, come on, let me just try I know, it ain't gonna hurt, is it? I did, and um, didn't taste so nice, but it it slowed down that head. It slowed me down because I lived at a tremendous pace of life. And when you're not living in a self honesty life, may nothing's normal because you believe what's coming out your mouth. You know, you believe that lie so good that you you're living that lie. And that's crazy to, to, to anybody. And so what did that behaviour that you, those lies, the, you know, your entire life being a lie, your desperate uh, need for heroin morning and night, how did it impact upon your life and in all its different facets, be it work with your MC and with your friends, with your family? The family, it was never a massive issue. They... They loved me and I knew they loved me and I loved them. And I guess the charm I had left was saving me with my family and I never done anything bad towards them. There were some stories I could go into, but I guess I keep it real, more real to prominent what's going on with, 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 the, um, with my peers and the people I was around me at that time. But with the family, yes, it was always there. My friends always had me. My my main Euclid hardcore friends had me. My peers, when the rumours started to come out and stuff and everything else, it became a little bit, hey, we need to just kind of step away from Flux a bit. He's on a different level then. How did that make you feel? It didn't bother me. Because you were so addicted to heroin? It wasn't that. No, I didn't give a fuck. Excuse my French. I... I but you're an attention seeker. How could you not give a it's, fuck? It's because I, I like the fact that someone... We, we touched about this earlier. I like the fact that someone talks about me. If you're talking about me, it doesn't bother me. What, even as a junkie? It doesn't bother me. What will bother me if you're brave enough to say it to my face? Not very many done that. Is that right? They've probably done it around my back. No one comes to me and said it to my face. You talk about uh, oh, people who did support you. Mm-hmm. Murray Beatson, who was the uh, was the the dreams famous uh, Dreamscape promoter, <sighs> he you got nicked in one of his raves, yeah, uh, for, uh, with, with a big bag of pills, right? You say that there wasn't wasn't quite the story; you weren't selling them, but um, it happened. Uh, and I think you went to prison, right? But he for that, but he he looked after you. Oh, mm. look, it wasn't just Murray. Listen, Murray, R.I.P. <sighs> Christ, there's always a start. It, I, I I don't know what it was. I guess. Somebody broke it down to me 
and I guess it was my offending officer at the time, he said, you've got a charisma about you, Carl, or Rodney, at the time. You know, I got that likeable factor. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to say how people broke it down to me. And, you know, even though how I lived a life, there's, there's a charm they said I had about myself. And he goes, you know, you, you can be a bit of an arsehole, but there's something, there's good in you. And people can see that if they're hanging on to that. Or if they want to get to, if they know about that. People didn't know, just think I'm that, and just think I'm that sort of person. But it was that factor that probably saved me at the time of my lows. And the, these promoters cared about me. There was the desire. There, there was the Rob Playford. I mean, he was as straight as, as a dyke. I mean, I remember going away for the same incident you were talking about. I'm coming out and I've got Rob Playford who done raves called Voodoo Magic. £1,500 in my hand. I think it was £1,500, yeah. So, yeah, because I missed three raves of the year. Yeah, that's yours. How did that feel? That must be he, he uh, uplifting. He, the, the, I mean, the, the too bad my Simon and Sean, I mean, they couldn't handle me, but Rob Playford, he, he loved me and I loved him. End of story. You stay he, in touch? Um, unfortunately, Rob's moved on to other avenues and Rob's a very hard person to get hold of, but he stood by me. When, when he could have set me free, he stood by me. How many people did stand by? Did you, know, did you get support from the rave community um, through your troubles? Yeah, there's some really good guys. Uh, don't get me wrong. There, there was, even, 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 listen, even as we speak to now, there's, there's some peers who just don't get it, and so be it. They're just not going to get it. They're going to say, hearing, chunky thing, nah. And they won't get it. There's no point dressing it down, making it up. They're just not going to have it and won't get it. There's some people who have probably read the book or know me and thinking, well, he doesn't look like a particular, really. He doesn't look hurt. He doesn't look shifty or nothing. And there's some guys who we're just thinking he's moved on. But there's a, there are guys out there who just, you know... You get, you, I'll be in a rave, big up the MC Flux. There won't be no big up MC Flux. It would just be straight through me. But like I said before, it doesn't bore me not from one end to the, to the other end. Cause well, you even had your life threatened over a coat. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like a weird thing to say. But, yeah. Um, um, you, you, someone said that you, you accidentally took a coat from the brother of a leading MC who was a gangster and then they threatened promoters to put you on the bill. I mean, it all sounded ridiculously over the top. Um, I mean, there must have been more to it, but... Uh, everybody's going to have their perceptions of this story and, uh, you know, I was, did I want to touch on it today because it would be an old feeling, but the truth is the child is in the book and, and it's... I'm going to tell you it my way and, and I hopefully, if people hear it, it's nipped in the bud. I don't need to justify my actions at that time of what happened. Now, did I think it was way over the top? course it was do I think I should have done something more about it yeah did I think I backed down under my level about it of course because I could have done what I wanted to do over people who are you particular DJs I didn't do what I wanted to do even though my career was going downhill I didn't do go to walk to these particular DJs and that's the truth there was people football friends people said Let's do this. We can nip this in the bud. doesn't matter if we win or lose. We got you. People come up to me on the side and say, we got you. 
People come shouting in my ear, go, you don't understand. I said, listen, that doesn't frighten me. I can, I can go to war with anybody. But it did impact on your MCing career, didn't Oh, it? yeah, because they were bullies. At that particular bar, I'll tell you, it's true. It was it's a bully thing. Anybody could be a bully. Anybody can ring someone. I let them out. I How much of that is there in the... I know there's a heck of a lot of that sort of stuff even that goes on the in the scene, hardcore scene, even but what though, about the Even though the scene? scene is big, it's very small, and it's very, very clicky. If you're not down with what's going on at the time, can you get left out? Very easily. Your career can be shut down as quick as it's being made. If there, there are rules and things, but if you play by the game and play by the thing, I don't play up. If people accept me the way I accept me, no, I don't, they don't. If people think I'm a negative, that's their problem. If people think that I'm positive, thank you very much. I have no time or implication to buy into anybody's insecurities because I know I'm a positive person. I know I've made mistakes, I made my choices, and this is my transition from here to there, and I've made it, and I know I'm doing well in my life. If people can't understand that and say, Flux, you're doing work at the moment, blah, blah, thank you. But if people think I'm still that 20 years, 15 years ago person, then that's up to them again. So you said when you first started becoming an addict, you were able to rely upon your wages from emceeing, but then they did dry up, partly because of your addiction, partly because of that, you know, those bullies that you talked about. Uh, you then had to find another way of, of, of providing the money that was going to get you your hit. And you turned to, well, robbery, but you weren't very good at it by the sounds of it. And secondly, enforcing, didn't you? You know, basically scaring people for money. Yeah, sort of thing, yeah. Um, we used sort of people down in the South Coast um, had to get certain things. But um, I wouldn't say that's detrimental. I mean, like I said before, it was the 90s. So the work I was getting, there's a lot of money around. And, I, and my career was still okay. I mean, it wasn't really being detrimental for me not to balance off my habit. Plus I had a house to pay for as well. I mean, I really bought a flat. Well, in terms, was losing. In, in, in terms of your enforcer jobs, I mean, you, there was one point where you did not use a gun, but you, uh, well... You didn't fire a gun, but you used a gun to scare a, a group of people. Is there anything that you wouldn't have done back at that point, you know, when you were at your lowest point of your addiction? Um, no, because I didn't care. You're an addiction, and you can't dress it up or you can't justify it. it I, my head wasn't right. You've got to understand, I was still doing football, violence let off my steam of what I was doing. How could you be bothered or how could you even bring yourself to be that violent when you were, like particularly the football stuff, when you were so heavily addicted to heroin? I can't imagine they're particularly easy bedfellows. Um, no. Sounds a bit weird, isn't it? Um, I guess it was the area and the comma, the, 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 um, the eucalyptus of friends, the football friends, it was a family as well, don't forget. And um, the firm at the time we made, when it, you know, back in the day, there was hundreds and there was probably, at its best, 150 lads, 100, 100 lads. And then back, as it got more or less, you only wanted 50, 50 to 30 top boys. So when we made our firm called the Dirty 30, we didn't only become a firm, we became a family. And they all 
good core group of friends. At my time of addiction during the drug of heroin, this group, this firm was made called the Dirty 30. And they were, my, they were firmly a group of boys. So, you know, when there was problems with financial stuff and everything else, I could turn to these boys and I could get the help I needed, no matter what it was. Well, due to heroin addiction, you lost your everything. You lost your wife, you lost your home, you lost your job, you lost a lot of your friends. Piers, look. How did you feel at the time? I've, I've, I've had a friend who was, who's, who's been a heroin addict. He's one of my very close friends and... I, I don't know if I've ever told him. I know he listens to this podcast. He became very difficult to hang around with because all he wanted was to meet up with you to get some money. And 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 it's not a fun relationship. It's not. A, it's, it's a very unweighted relationship. So I, I I understand how some of your friends must have felt about it. But how did you feel at the time? You just weren't thinking about it. You were so no, because you're you're only thinking about yourself. You don't. Everybody else's feelings doesn't come into it. it unfortunately. It, there's a stigma behind it. I guess it, that's, that's, to me, I reckon where the, the dirtiness comes from. It's the stigma behind of that selfish thinking of yourself. You're not looking at the implications that you're putting on people's life the way I'm living it and the way I'm pursuing it. And... It's like I would do anything to say, look, as long as I get the people on my side and manipulate my lies the way I want it, then I'm all right. And I'm not thinking about their things. And now you're clean, and we're going to come on to this in a minute. We're going to round off this this interview by talking about the things you do now shortly. But now you are clean, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully. Um, and you, Flux is back, uh, as, you've, as, so as you'd big. say. So uh, big. How, how do you feel looking back on that period now? It, do you regret um, it? Do you wish you did um, something? You know, I mean, do, do you wish you'd done? What do you wish you'd done differently? Sometimes, do I get? Some people never ask me that question. Do I get embarrassed? And I guess I do. Not embarrassed. I get ashamed a bit. So I think, how did I get from here to there? How did I become an heroin addict? It doesn't make sense to me. It's not like I went round with. One and that person took it like that. No, none of my friends come close to taking that sort of drug. A lot of my friends, even my best mate, has never even touched crack. Bit nice or nothing like that. So, how did I get to there if he's not there? That's my best mate. So, this is what I'm trying to say. It's how I, it was my choices. It's not like I was short and I was going around with a lot of people and then I became something like that. I made these choices by myself because maybe it was a way of testing myself. Can I take something? Can I do something? And can I come up the other side? I mean, you did, but it's taken some time. Yeah, and, it, I, yeah, and, and, and there's been detrimental effects why and what's happened to people around me and what I've lost. And I have to live with that every single day, no matter what, to the end of the... To a die. Okay, let's talk about let's talk about flux. So let's talk about all three: Carl Flux and, and Rodney. You talk about in the way of flux. Would my all my peers look at me the same? No. Will some of my peers look at me the same? Yes. Will some of my peers take me serious? No. Do I have? Would I have a stigma behind flux? Yes. So there's that effect. There's 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 Rodney taking heroin. Would my friend? What did it become then? <laughs> It, it became like, oh, nobody wants to know Rodney no more because I won't lie everybody to know Rodney. Rodney was too 
out of control. In, if you want to break it down to that, I was an addict. Say, Carl, I'm a whole different animal. I am what I am. Is I am what you see. And I understand life. And I want to live in a pro-social way of living a pro-social life. And if people can't understand that, I'm not going to justify my life. I'm just going to understand it's easier to live one way. Open, honest, and in a closed way of being a pro-social person. And that's paying bills, coming home, being happy and living life. Well, we're going to talk about how you managed to get yourself back up on your feet in the uh, the final segment of this interview with MC Flux here on Raw, the 90s Raid podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, hello at the 90s Raid podcast. That's the email. We're also on all your social medias uh, as well on YouTube. Hello if you're watching. If you're on audio, get over to YouTube because there's loads going on over there as well. We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw, but now's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast, and it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, we've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it so this is the Raw, the Nice Raid podcast with MC Flux. He's got himself a nice cup of coffee just to finish off this final part of episode two of his uh, interview. I want to sort of look back around. You, 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 we've talked about your tough times. We've talked about how you had your difficulties with addiction and what that meant. Um, but I'd be interested to know in how it turned itself around. And bizarrely, it turned itself around with a spell in prison. Uh, so in... 2007 was the last time I think you went down in 2007 it was you got 38 months it was for football violence uh, I mean you, you say in the, in, the, in the book it wasn't as bad as it was claimed but it must have been quite bad to get 38 months yeah the reason why I'm thinking about the actual um, altercation I've, like I said it's going to be it's my opinion things always made bad than what they are the reason why there was so much of us got a lot of high sentence is because they were they were they were looking for us for years it wasn't just they got lucky there was a lot of heat on us already we were, as a firm for three years we made a lot of noise up and down in the country we were dangerous we were we were called we were called dirty 30 for a reason we took no shit and we took shit towards shit Basically, we took it to you and anything went 
with us. It wasn't a game to me. Some people look at football hooliganism as, there ain't no part-time football hooligan. When someone goes, what's a football hooligan? You can get hurt. Let me get this right. You interviewed John Wilder, yeah? You have interviewed John okay. Wilder. And, and, and you said that people lose their life and blah, blah, how can you justify blah? Okay, look, in football, you, you can lose your life or you can lose your looks or you can lose something or you can lose something detrimental towards you. That's what football violence is. It's unprecedented, raw. You don't know what you're coming up against. So you don't know if you're coming home that that night. So there is no part-time football hooligan. You're either in it or you're not in it. Now, my crew, the Dirty 30, we were in it and we were prepared to take it as far as we wanted to take it. So we laid down the law to a lot of these firms that anything goes with us. There ain't no coming to the pub afterwards and I say that was a good tear-up. <laughs> no. If you come with us, you know you're in a tear-up. And it's vice versa. So when um, I lost my um, civil rights, and so be it, during that time I went to football um, got my sentence, it was a wake-up call. It was like 40 years of age and I'm in here inside <laughs> for football. <laughs> what a mug. It's not like I'm in here for 30 grand and... Well, you that's know. what that's what gangsters always say, isn't it? Yeah. They say, "Why would you do football? Yeah, they're pointless. You're only going to get prison. You're not going to make anything of any money from it." Mm. But I guess you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's going to be hard for me to justify to anybody what's in it for football. It's nothing to do with that. It's like I like that buzz of football. End of story. So we should say what happened was you were on a train, uh, your mob attacked a mob of Charlton, whether they were fans or lads, don't know, uh, sort of doesn't really matter. You ran through the, 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 the train beating people up. It was all on camera. You got your 38 months. We know that. That's a fact. We don't really need to go too much more into that. But what it did do was you got that 38 months and it, it changed your life. It rehabilitated you. Uh, you got clean in prison. And you changed your mindset, you changed your focus and what you were going to do in life. Tell us about how that happened. It was a wake-up call. It was, it was the one. It was a blessing in disguise. It was, it was everything, what some people do not believe in justice, the rehabilitation of a man and my transition from who I was to now. And what I mean by that, Sometimes it takes someone to believe in someone to make them wake up, to make them show that what they can deliver in life and what they've become. And you were helped by somebody, some good people inside, right? There were some good people and there was also a lot of belief in what I can change and I can become someone else. And I don't have to be this person to play up to the... To play up... Oh, I'm on camera now. To play up to the camera or just be myself. I remember um, I use it during one of my speeches when I give my mentoring or doing anything. And it was in a film. It's a line in, from a film called um, The Equalizer with um, Denzel Washington. And he says a line to this girl goes, change your world. And some people goes, you don't live in my world. You don't know what I have to go through. You don't know what I have to do to blah, blah, blah. You never live my life. Every single excuse you list that you name. And it's simple. Change your world. But what do you mean? Do what you need to do to make sure you don't live that life no more. But what do you mean like what? 
move. If there's a drug dealer up the road, walk the other way. Change your friends. Do what you have to do to keep yourself safe so your mind as person changes into a pro-social person and engage and then it can happen and a lot of people won't believe it or won't accept it because they've never been through it and it's hard for those sort of people who I like to sort of like say that it does happen I don't know when the penny drops for some people but it does happen but you have to believe it and have you been clean since oh gosh well we 2007 so you're talking 13 years aren't we so, you, so you've been clean ever since you haven't relapsed? No. Ever been tempted? You're always tempted that you're always an addict. Um, but I changed my world, don't I? I, um, I don't hang out with people who I believe. I don't go after parties. Um, have I partied? Have I lapsed on any drug you mean or anything like that? No, no, oh, I, mean, I, mean, yes. I mean heroin. No, oh, no, 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 the, no, the, no. The problematic drugs is really no, what I'm no, talking about. No, 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 So you're able to do some drugs uh, have, have, have that, I, that are not... Through, through my time of of um, changing the way I think and look at life, have I lapsed? Yes. But I have I become reliant on drugs nowhere near it. And you haven't touched heroin? No. No, 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 no. no. And crack? No. Okay, that's good. I mean, they're the two that are, 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 the, are the most problematic generally in, mm, in people's mm. lives. And, and what about violence? Have you, have you turned your back on violence now? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how someone's driving in front of you, I suppose. No, I had, no, I had a very famous um, video that went online um, coming from a gig. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> of course it was. I could have walked away and it was caught on camera. But it, the story behind it, it was, it was named to... Sh- um, shame me for what I haven't changed and unfortunately it backfired and it backfired on someone else which is horrible but it did but generally you're not you're not no, there's no I, is there anything that really drives you to I, violence um, these days no no I mean I I, I get upset I'm, I'm only human I get upset and there's, there's probably things that tempt me because uh, I'll be lying and but I try everything to not be able to make Become that person. What do you do? What are the what are the steps you try to take in your maybe in your mind? Do you count to ten? Thought, thought process and breathing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the thought process to know that if I enter this this realm and it sounds different, I'm using this word realm, then I could find myself in a whole heap of trouble. And I always say the same thing. It sounds good at a time, but when that when you're in that cell, not the police, not the prison cell. The police cell, that's when everything switches. What the hell am I doing here? Because it just comes apparent that I could have walked away from this. Mm. What am I doing? I mean, you, you, are you still, you're still close to your family? I mean, you've got a lovely partner now as well, Julia, uh, who, mm. uh, who helps you, does your, your bookings and your PR and all that sort of stuff. How much support are they to you to live a clean, non-violent life? Okay, well, she's here, so I'm going to say a lot of nice things. <laughs> no, um, let's keep it real. What I heard is no me, there's no, there's no interview. So there's the job she's doing immensely to keep me stable. Um, she doesn't drink or anything like that. So it comes hand in hand. I cannot see myself doing anything stupid, which I shouldn't be doing. And for making me, building me up and putting me in that focal running 
and keeping me, um, well, you can say viable. It's happening now. I mean, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing best now. And I do have a choice. There was a time, and before we end this interview, there was a time I could have made a decision last year if COVID didn't happen. Hey, I, I, this could be something again for me. Forget the, the work I do with, 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 the, um, with the mentoring or with the ex-offenders or mental health or anything else. I'm talking about the music. It's turned to 360. I could have like looked at it and thinking, this could become flux again if COVID didn't happen. And this is how serious the music got again for me. And it's not only just that, it's the way... You tell me, what, we, what, what sort of stuff were you looking at? What were you going to do? Well, what could have looked at it, it could, it could be a career again. It could be a living. Okay. Because, you know, the, the, the prestige bookings were coming in. There was artists and people looking at me again and says, look, Flux, he's a serious guy now. He's, he, no, he's thought process. If people, when people meet me who've only heard how I am and blah, blah, I'm thinking, well, he's not this guy I sort of, uh, I've heard or whatever, or his, his process is different. Don't get me wrong, I'm still, there's still people who just say, nah, he's not for me. So be it. I made my own bed. I gave them that choice. I can't take that back. But there are people who are like, hey, it's not what I may have heard. So I could do work with this guy. Mm. We could do some business. And Julia, my partner, my agent, my management, is changing them um, social backgrounds down very, very quite well. I think she's going to be quite well in, in um, becoming an agent thing. And then there's, so there's the other side of me, which I do myself, look after myself, which is the mentoring, the working with ex-offenders and also the... Um, so you do now work in um, offender rehabilitation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, where you do it, and, and who, what sort of people you work with? Okay. Um, there's three sort of... Um, well, there's, there's two, and there's one I'm doing, a very excited project coming up very, very soon. One was a charity, and they were called User Voice, and they were dealing with ex-offenders, which is close to my heart because I'm an ex-offender. And it's just people rehabilitating themselves back into society to live a pro-social life. And user voice give them self give them the that the platform. So when there's time and when there's any I got, I volunteer myself to them. There's also the White Chapel, which they are based in Liverpool. Um I used to do my volunteering hours for and that's mostly for the homeless. And there's another one um, which is close to my heart. It's, it's, it's just the mentoring side, um, which, which involves seminars and being giving speeches into um, schools, units, basically schools where these guys have been excluded, and to give my perception of, um, okay, look, you know, this is the way I lived my life, you don't have to choose the barriers I choose. Why go left when you can go right? And so on and so on and so on. And how do they react to you, someone who's had success in, uh, it, uh, you know, an, un, uh, an underground urban uh, music scene? It, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you get their attention straight away as soon as you mention music. 
the more you go on and you say how you lived your life and you, what drugs you turn to, some of these, because some of these um, guys are just not going to look at you right. We mentioned particular drugs. But it's not that. It's how you come across as a person and how you show your yourself. And if you engage right, if you, like I said, if you get hold of one, you're doing your job right. Well, how does it make you feel when you to to think that you that you've changed people's lives for the better and maybe sent them down a a positive path rather than a destructive one? Well, I haven't changed anybody's life. I don't believe that. I I always I'm not sure. that might, that can't be true. No, no, because I believe that you have to. You have to do it. I can only be there and show my support and show that it can be done. I believe in that so much. I show that support and to be a listening ear. And I think that's the hardest thing to do for a human being is to listen and to understand someone's feelings. Do you know what I mean? That empathy and people go, oh, what is empathy? It's a word. But if you really don't really know what empathy means, it's feeling that person's journey, understanding what they're going through and be able to sit there with them and say, listen, I may not know what you're going through at the moment, but I understand. And just, just to listen. God, I can talk for the world and twice on a Sunday, but when I do my job, I can listen and I can understand someone's journey. So I ain't doing nothing to change their life. They're doing it for it's for me to just be there and say, look, I'm here for you. Don't worry, I'm here, you know. It must be nice to have currently at the moment with COVID because, of course, bookings will have dried up uh, due to no 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 raves. Um, how have you found that? It's been it's been weird because I was really looking forward to me and my partner um, were looking forward to take taking on this year of music, but when door a door shuts and everyone opens and this guy who's opened the door for me came named Matthew Norton, big up Miss Pepper as well. Um, this guy is involved in the Gooch and Doddington and they're very serious gangs in Manchester. And this guy called Matthew Norton has had massive dealings with them. He was gave a massive interview on Channel 5 the other day and he's putting me to work with some kids this November. And I'm looking forward to that. I have not been on that side. I've done the football field thing, but I haven't done the gang thing. This guy's a serious guy. He's, he's as serious as it gets. I mean, listening to this guy, like, whoa, whoa okay, I've been the football side, but I ain't never seen this side. And this is deep. And this is this is North as well. And I, I've lived some of my life in North. North is different from South. They, if you think it's rough, it, dark and green in South, you've got to know what you're dealing with when you're up North. And this guy's the real deal, and he's doing magical things. He's he's um, organisation one message and one purpose, and I'm looking forward to doing some work with him on this month. Sounds sounds exciting. Hopefully, as long as I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, be useful. Uh, and uh, just finally to wrap this up, how do you feel? Usually, the, I ask this question about how people feel looking back on the '90s, and usually it's been a period of pure joy and exhilaration and success um, and you have elements of that but you also have elements very much of downs as well how do you feel looking back on your time in the 90s you know I, I you know I had a VT made up about me for the book Dirty and Sometimes, just just sometimes, I'm thinking, you know, I, I was, 
on that echelons of a top leading MC. Sometimes I forget that I was that sort of person. And if I only thought differently, my life could have been so different, but I didn't. And, and it is what it is now. And, you know, I've, I'm always going to be judged on that. Is that going to be my legacy? Flux, the, what, what Dirty says, that. Am I always going to be judged on that? Is that going to be my legacy? Or is that going to be my legacy? And that's probably the thing what probably I think about the most. What's going to be my legacy? That doesn't sound like the flux that opened this podcast who said he didn't give a fuck what anyone else thinks. No, I don't. But I care what, how I'm going to leave this world, how I'll be remembered. Do you know what I mean? I can't change people's perception of, like, you know, what I'd done, what I became, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the stigma behind the hearing as it became and, you know, the fact of the the whole era of, you know, what was I this, was I that, did I do this, did I do that? Do you know, there's, there's, there's things now I believe I still get judged on because people won't let that perception go about me. And not like I try because... If they think like that, they think like that. It's not for me to change their mind, it's for them to understand in that I no longer have the time or implications to change your mind about it. But my legacy, how is my legacy going to be remembered? And that's the only thing. I don't, like I said, no, I don't. I'll be honest with you, I don't care if them people are going to sit there and say, look, this is what I think about Flux. That doesn't bother me. It's my legacy to people who matter. Well, let's hope when COVID goes away that you see the return of MC Flux at the top of his game again, eh? Oh, I'm there already. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was MC Flux Thank there, uh, telling Raw of the Night is Rave podcast about his unbelievable life story as a top rave MC and a drug-dealing football hooligan turned good guy. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Rave podcast. All donations will be ploughed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country, interviewing some of your rave favourites, and also improving our equipment. 